traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Impeachment proceedings against President Donald Trump seemed likely to come to a swift close. The outcome was never in doubt, and that says a lot about the Senate as an institution, about Republicans as a party, and about impeachment as an effective check on power. And through centuries of British art, just about the only woman depicted as pregnant was the Virgin Mary. All that changed in the late 20th century, but a new exhibition looks back at all those missing baby bumps and why they were brushed out of history. First up, though. Twice over the past 80 years, Britain has pressed the reset button. The first came at the end of the Second World War. Victory day changes to victory night, and the darkening skies over London are lit by the joyous lights of peace. The second in 1979 with the advent of Thatcherism. Now that the election is over, may we get together and strive to serve and strengthen the country of which we are so proud to be a part. Today, Brexit Day marks a third. It's over three and a half years since the vote to leave the European Union. Ladies and gentlemen, dare to dream that the dawn is breaking on an independent United Kingdom. But the actual act of leaving has proved complicated, to say the least. It involved one failed negotiation, two general elections, and plenty of political squabbling. The process exposed deep differences between political parties, regions, even within families. But tonight, at 11 p.m., Britain and the EU will separate. It's time, says the Prime Minister, for everyone to move on. Let's make this the moment when we put the divisions behind us. Let's come together and go forward with confidence into the 20s, an exhilarating decade of growth, prosperity and opportunity. Well, I think leaving the EU is a huge step. John Pete is our Brexit editor. There will be barriers to trade with the European Union, which we will suffer from, but there's the opportunity to reorient trade and reorient our economy a bit more away from Europe. And a lot depends on, really, the domestic policies that this government pursues. But a lot of the discussion over these past few years has been the, about the, the degree to which it's fraught trying to, to rework things away from Europe, and you're describing it as, as an opportunity. Why is it more a, a positive spin? Well, I, I think clearly leaving the world's biggest trade bloc imposes costs, and creating barriers between Britain and the European Union 
will impose costs. It'll be costly, more costly to some industries than others. But since we are doing it, it sort of seems sensible to think about, well, maybe you could gain more from reorient a bit towards the United States, China, Japan, the rest of the world, and we could escape some of the burden of, of EU regulation. I think the costs are likely to outweigh the benefits, but it's sensible to look for some of the benefits while you can. Well, what form do the costs take? I mean, given that almost half of Britain's exports go to the European Union, those exports are going to have to comply largely with European Union regulations or they won't be allowed in. And I think the question that that still hasn't quite been answered in terms of the future relationship is how far should Britain diverge from European Union regulations? In some areas, we are likely to feel that it's much better to stay within European Union regulations. In others, possibly including financial services and other high-tech areas and other service areas, we may think it's better to to diverge and look for a different a different platform. But I think it is important that people should recognise that leaving European Union regulations is going to impose a burden on British exports. A cynical view of this might be that uh, that Britain is going to spend a great deal of time trying to rework the books and strike new deals and end up with something that is roughly equivalent to, if if not worse, than, than the deal they have now. What, what's your view on that? I think certainly in the short term, leaving the European Union is likely to reduce the size of the economy because if you introduce trade frictions, you're going to lose some of your your income. What happens in the longer term will depend whether you can do trade deals with third countries that are beneficial, for example. And it's not clear yet how easy that will be to do. Um, That seems to be what Boris Johnson's government wants to try. But doing trade deals with people like the Americans, Chinese and Indians is very difficult. So a lot depends on on how the relationship with Europe evolves and what the relationship with other countries globally works out at. We have endlessly talked about uh, the the Brexit deal and the actual sort of notion of Brexit as the as the end of something. In fact, the the election mantra "get Brexit done," but it's it's now really only beginning. What what happens next now that Britain is out? What's to be done? Britain will leave the European Union at eleven p.m. today, but it moves immediately into what's called a transition period, during which actually nothing will change, and we'll still be subject to all the European Union's rules, including the European Court of Justice, until the end of the year. What we then have is 11 months in which to negotiate a new relationship with the European Union. And that is going to be quite difficult because these negotiations on trade and other matters typically take years, not months. And there's a lot of contentious issues that need to be settled, notably, for example, access to British fishing waters, what we do about the future trade relationship, how we handle immigration from the European Union, and what we do to preserve our security relationship with uh, the rest of of Europe. Those things are going to be quite contentious for a lot of the rest of the year, and many people do not think 11 months is sufficient time to negotiate all that. If if I could ask you to get your crystal ball out and and imagine a time when all of these things are resolved and and things have settled and Brexit is very much in the rearview mirror, how will Britain look then, do you think? I think Britain will still look like a European country because much of the sort of structure of the British economy, a welfare state, fairly high levels of taxation and public spending, concern about climate change and so on, makes Britain look European more than like Singapore or even the United States. But clearly it will not be in the European Union. There are other European countries not in the European Union. We will be one of them. The big uncertainty really is how close a relationship will Britain still have with the European Union when it's not a member. Norway has a very close relationship with the European Union. 
But a country like Ukraine does not have such a close relationship. We'll probably be somewhere in the middle. There will be a relationship, but it won't be as close as Norway's. And and what about all of the the angst and rancor that this has has caused among the people? I mean, this this has caused rifts, uh, you know, across political divides, you know, even within households. Do you think that finally getting Brexit done, so it's said, actually will will start a healing process? I think one of the sort of sad things, if you like, about about Brexit has been the the, the strong division between those who favoured remaining at the time of the referendum and those who wanted to leave at the time of the referendum. And we spent three and a half years or four years, really, arguing about that. Now that Britain is definitely leaving and Boris Johnson's government has a large majority to, in effect, do what it likes, I think those who think it's all a mistake are not going to keep quiet, but I think they will probably accept that that's just the decision that's taken and we have to make the best of it. Probably a group of those people will say, actually, we should reopen the whole question and consider rejoining the European Union. But I think many of them feel it's not worth raising that issue now. So probably for the next few years, we will seem less divided than we were. John, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Yesterday, the Senate concluded its questioning phase in the impeachment trial of President Donald Trump. Now, lawmakers will be asked to vote on whether or not to allow witnesses to testify. That issue became a major point of contention this week. Former National Security Advisor John Bolton's account of events directly contradicts Mr. Trump's over the central quid pro quo question of the case, whether Mr. Trump pressured Ukraine into doing him a political favor. His lawyers asserted that he hadn't. The fact that President Zelensky himself felt no pressure on the call and did not perceive there to be any connection between security assistance and investigations would, in any ordinary case, in any court, be totally fatal to the prosecution. We know there was no quid pro quo on the call. We know that from the transcript. Democrats, of course, disagreed. It wasn't until Biden began beating him in the polls that he called for the investigation. President Trump had the motive, he had the opportunity, and the means to commit this abuse of power. And President Trump, of course, dismisses the whole affair. While we are creating jobs and killing terrorists, the congressional Democrats are obsessed with demented hoaxes, crazy witch hunts, and deranged partisan crusades. And dismissing the whole affair is precisely what the Senate seems certain to do. After nine days, the impeachment trial of Donald Trump looks to be almost done. James Astle is The Economist's Washington bureau chief. Later today, we'll go through what appears to be the last act before the final vote on his guilt or innocence, if you like. That last act will be a vote on whether the Senate should request more witnesses, allow more witnesses in the trial, This has been one of the big questions hanging over the last few days, and it seems 
we know now which way the Senate will vote. There won't be enough Republican votes to support the Democratic minority in demanding new witnesses, new new evidence in the trial, and therefore that motion will fail. And in pretty short order, the Republican majority leader, Mitch McConnell, will move the trial to a conclusion with a vote on acquittal or conviction, which we can be very sure will lead to Donald Trump's acquittal. And how is it that this last act has all come down to witnesses? This has been a a very, very hot-button issue because many of the key witnesses to Donald Trump's alleged misdemeanor have not been available to the Democratic investigators of this impeachment case because of the White House's obstructionism. John Bolton, the former national security advisor, appears to have damning things to say about President Trump, has let it be known that he would be willing to appear before the Senate if subpoenaed. Democrats absolutely want him to be subpoenaed. Seems, however, that that's not going to happen. For there to be witnesses, we would need, we think, four Republican senators to join the Democrats in voting to demand new evidence to allow new witnesses. And it seems that's not going to happen. There will be at least two Republican senators voting for witnesses and Susan Collins and Mitt Romney. But maybe a third, Lisa Murkowski from Alaska, and no more than that. The fourth necessary Republican vote, it seemed, could have been the senator from Tennessee, Lamar Alexander. But at the end of the ninth day of the impeachment, he released a statement saying he saw no need for additional witnesses. So it looks as if the Democrats will fail. Well, in in, in a sense, the, the ultimate outcome of this has seemed assured from the start, given the Republican control of the Senate. How have the, the Democrats tried nonetheless to, to, to fight that eventuality? The arguments against him, the arguments for his removal from office, are apparently strong. The Democratic House managers who have been making those arguments, who have been describing based on the somewhat incomplete, but nonetheless quite striking evidence that they have, their case that Donald Trump abused his office by offering a quid pro quo to his Ukrainian counterpart, American aid for a personal favor for Donald Trump. The president invited Ukraine to get involved in our election to help him cheat against Joe Biden. And moreover, that his effort to obstruct Congress from investigating that quid pro quo is additionally impeachable and grounds for removal. President Trump's orders were clear. They prevented key government witnesses from testifying. That's obstruction, plain and simple. Democrats have made those arguments quite strongly and clearly. But do you think any of the blame for the state of the trial, the brevity of this trial, belongs with the Democrats? House Democrats had a choice to make um, before they voted to send these articles of impeachment up to the Senate. Having been blocked by the administration in their request for witnesses and and documents, they could have chosen to, to contest that obstruction in the courts. They could have attempted to enforce their subpoenas through the judiciary. They decided not to do that. I think you can you can make an argument that if the Democratic Party at large in the House and the Senate focused entirely, perhaps to the exclusion of their political interests, on the need to serve justice, to pursue this impeachment process to the fullest, they would have tried to enforce their House subpoenas through the courts and that they would be fighting with similar vehemence in the Senate right now. That's not the case. They felt that it would lead to a protracted battle 
with no end in sight in an election year where both sides potentially stand to be damaged by the electoral cycle mixing too much with this impeachment battle. They don't want a protracted impeachment trial that leads, in essence, to their own failure, to the president's acquittal. So it may be that a shorter trial suits the Democrats, given that the conclusion is ultimately in little doubt. So both sides then have opted for political expediency over a more bounded constitutional duty. It's necessary to point out that there's absolutely no equivalence here between the sort of the culpability of the Democrats, the culpability of the Republicans. The Republicans are standing against their own record in judging presidents, in defining presidential power, in determining what is impeachable behavior in the Oval Office and what is not. They have they have sided with the president in utter contradiction of their previous positions. They've supported his obstruction of the process and they've tried to, to curtail an embarrassing serious trial of the president in the Senate. Their behavior has been utterly, utterly shameless. And with the bar being raised for what is and, and what isn't impeachable, and, and as you say, shameless behavior, do you think this will hurt the Senate as an institution? I think that the Senate has been sort of hurtling to irrelevance for some time. The notion that it is a great deliberative body is, is a nonsense. Its tradition of debate is long gone. It doesn't even really pass many bills under this Republican leadership. This Congress may turn out to be the least productive in 50 years. And now it is plainly rubbished and ducked its supreme responsibility to be able to impeach, try and hold presidents to account. So the Senate looks like a busted flush currently, I must say. It's a very grave lookout for institutionalists, for the constitutional system. And, and what about the presidency itself and this more expansive view of presidential power? I think the precedent that will be set by the president's almost certain acquittal looks extremely bad for, for the impeachment process, for the understanding of presidential power to break rules in the president's own political interest. All of this is extremely troubling in terms of President Trump's own future behavior and apparently the impossibility of holding him to account outside a general election until a president is checked in following the precedent that Donald Trump is now setting. There is tremendous rule-breaking license for the president, and that, of course, will apply to any president, Democratic or Republican. James, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. For centuries, women could expect to spend a significant amount of their lives pregnant, producing broods that often numbered into the teens. But looking at them in galleries and museums, you'd never know it. The default for centuries was that pregnancy was not represented in art. Rachel Lloyd edits Prospero, The Economist's arts and culture blog. Portraitists would conceal the pregnancy. They would edit it out, basically. It was treated as a blemish or something unseemly. So we know when a woman sat for her portrait, and then we look at the portrait... There is no evidence that the woman was pregnant, but we know that she was. Karen Hearn researches pregnancy in portraiture. When I started this research 20 years ago, even then, there were still concerns about mentioning pregnancy. Women who were pregnant were wearing tent-like dresses. It was not really a visible condition. Dr. Hearn has now curated the first ever major show in Britain to explore the topic. Portraits are, of course, completely constructed, and a, a portrait results from a series of choices, an interaction between the artist, the skilled practitioner, 
the sitter and the person who's paying, who is more than probably is the husband. So the point of a painted portrait is that you might improve on reality. So if a woman's pregnant, the usual thing would be not to depict her as pregnant. There are a couple of reasons why women weren't depicted as pregnant in portraits. One of them is that it was a very laborious process, so it was seen as too much for a pregnant woman to be choreographed and painted for hours at a time. Another is that it was seen as a transient state, and frequently it was seen as something that wasn't really worth capturing. And a third is that it indicated sexual activity, which was improper and inappropriate, despite the fact that these women were often married and the portraits were being commissioned by their husbands. It was just seen as as something that was not fit to look at. Edited out, you mean they would have, uh, after the fact, brushed them away? Pregnancy was treated much like other so-called deformities of the age. Smallpox, scars were not evident in any portraits. They were seen as the best version of, of the subject. Artists would paint a portrait of a lady while she was pregnant, and often she would return a year and a half later when she wasn't pregnant, and they would paint it again, or paint her lower section again. Or they would use things like draped material or a particular pose that concealed the pregnancy. Researchers like Karen Hearn, the curator of the exhibition, have used artist logs to work out whether a subject was pregnant. They've matched it with birth records and and basically done a bit of detective work to work it out. And so it's really hard then to look back into that period and see any depictions of pregnancy. There are some exceptions. Obviously, Mary, as mother of Jesus, is depicted frequently. During the reign of Elizabeth I, pregnancy portraits were done chiefly by a painter called Marcus Gerhardts, who was Flemish. He painted lots of women in a very late stage of pregnancy, gently kind of cupping their their baby bumps. It seems counterintuitive because you had a virgin queen, there was no apparent heir, but the exhibition makes the case that it reflected a kind of anxiety about, about children, about succession, about hereditary roles, all that sort of thing. And that kind of attitude, those kinds of airbrushings carried on, you say, until the the late 20th century? Yes, there's a a curious paradox, I think, between women spending much of their adult lives pregnant. Women in the 16th, 17th, 18th, up until the end of the 19th century would have umpteen children, sometimes into the teens, sometimes into the 20s, but they're not represented in art. And then as women have more bodily autonomy, as birth control becomes more available, pregnancies become seen as more special, more chosen, more rare, and then it becomes represented more frequently in art. And so how did that transition happen? How did pregnancies become something celebrated in public life? With the advent of the feminist movement is when you start to see more portraits of women, often self-portraits. So it was women celebrating this state and this bodily change that they were going through. In terms of it breaking through into the mainstream, it was really in 1991 with Demi Moore posing naked at seven months pregnant on the cover of Vanity Fair. She is tanned and beautiful. She's wearing only a ring. But at the time, even that was controversial. It was put on the top shelf of newsstands and it was often hidden in a brown paper bag as if it was pornographic. We think now of Beyonce breaking the internet, so to speak, with her pregnancy announcement with twins where she had hired a photographer to take a picture of her against a backdrop of roses, but it's really a very new thing. And so you think the, the exhibition then kind of tells the tale, that, that development of the, the idea, the notion of, of bodily autonomy? The exhibition and the accompanying book really make the case that it's 
not just looking at gestation, it's looking at women's history and women's place in art history. It's about how women's socioeconomic roles have changed. It's a glimpse into how their position and their expectations have changed. I was just really taken aback by the fact that this is the first major exhibition in Britain to deal with this subject, something that is such a key part of women's experience. Rachel, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. That's it for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here on Monday.